Welcome everyone to Global Research's Year Ahead Outlook Call. My name is Sam Mazzarello and I lead content strategy for the department. And today we're gonna to have a call on what's next. I'm joined today by Marco Kalanovic, our chief global market strategist and co-head of global research, along with 10 research leads from across our department globally. And we're gonna talk about the macro and market landscape in 2024 and what we expect. I wanna remind everyone about the structure of the call, just so you know where we're going with this. There's gonna be brief remarks from all our speakers. You're gonna hear a summary of the most salient points from their asset class and from their outlook. For more details, insights, and analysis, which has been done, I'm gonna encourage you, we would all encourage you, to take a look at our global research publication, which came out on Friday, along with all the asset class outlooks and deep dives, all of which are available on morganmarkets.com. And as always, if we can help you in any way, never hesitate to reach out to any of us or your sales rep. And with that, to set us off and level set with the Global Markets Outlook, I want to turn it over to Marco. Thank you, Samantha, and thanks everyone for dialing in. Uh, I will start a little bit with a sort of overview on this year. So at the end of the uh, last uh, year, most of market participants uh, expect significant economic slowdown and perhaps even recession by the end of this year. That didn't happen. The main reasons for that were reopening in China. China provided significant impulse to global economy and, and optimism in the markets in the first part of the year. It was a strong fiscal spend in the US as well in Europe, which boosted the economy. And consumer, mostly in the US, was holding up pretty well. Remember, consumer uh, came with a pretty significant savings and liquidity coming out of the coronavirus crisis. And that sort of buffer has been sort of eroded through the year, but kept consumer uh, going uh, through the most of the year. Uh, risk markets started weak below 4,000, for instance, in the US, but through the year, uh, through the year moved higher. There was also significant divergence between different risk markets and economy. Good example is, for instance, in Europe, we had a Germany uh, uh, contracting this year, so practically uh, having a recession, while local markets moving to all-time highs and rallying uh, through the most uh, part of this year. Conversely, in China, that provided probably about two-thirds of, of, of this imp impulse, uh, markets were down significantly more than, more than 20%. So quite a bit of a divergence. What do we expect for 2024? Uh, so we do expect um, that restrictive monetary policy will slow down economies uh, globally, as, as well as in U.S., which should have a negative impact impact on the risk markets. So this consumer consumer strength that I talked about is eroding. So already by now, around 60 to 70% of consumer is worse off relative to a, a, a pre-pandemic situation. And by the mid-year, virtually all of them will be uh, worse off. At the same time, valuation of risk markets are pretty high. So if one looks simply at the market volatility, it's very, very low, and one would think that everything is perfect. Equity multiples are high, and Ms. and Dubrowko will uh, talk about that. Credit spreads are tight. Um, and we are seeing some troubling, first troubling sign, as I mentioned already with consumer, but also uh, broadly delinquencies. And we saw some of it earlier in the year around regional banking crisis, and we expect to see more of that in 24 and then also going into 25. So our price target, if I look at the equities, uh, this year was 4,200. So we were expecting market to go up, not quite as much as it's going up, uh, it's, it's now. Um, and we are actually maintaining that price target 
for the rest of next year. So we keep the price target of 4,200, which is relatively bearish if we compare ourselves to uh, our, uh, our competitors. We see that happening sort of in an environment of economic slowdown. Uh, so basically, um, economy, uh, uh, economic growth declining quite significantly, and Bruce and, 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 and Mike will talk about that. And also, we see elevated, uh, elevated risk of recession. So now, right now, the sentiment in the markets is pretty positive. Uh, I would call it uh, uh, classified as a Goldilocks, you know, like so economic growth that sort of uh, persists. Uh, persist strong that um, risk markets sort of go higher, and at the same time, Fed that cuts the cuts the interest rates. We we're sort of a little bit skeptical that that will uh, play exactly like that. I would like to remind uh, that um, uh, when one look at the economic slowdown and possibility of recession, you know, yield curve is inverted now for about 15 months. Historically, it was between 18 and 24 months when you would see this type of slowdown and the highest risk of recession. So we don't think sort of we are we are out of the woods, hence a relatively cautious outlook, both on economy and risk markets. And I'll sort of stop here and pass it back to you, Samantha. Thank you. So that's a very good segue then to go to the global economic outlook. Bruce Kasman is our chief global economist. Bruce, you've written about demand expected to soften in 2024 and inflation to come down, but perhaps not to levels that central banks are gonna be completely comfortable with. Can you walk us through your view on the global economy? Right. So the title of our global outlook for this year is I'm not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. And what I'm what we're trying to get across there is that we continue to be skeptical of the soft landing uh, scenarios that are increasingly being uh, priced into markets, that we um, maintain a narrative that has a bias towards a boil the frog, gradual erosion of health and, and ultimately a recession. But we're not. Uh, pounding the table here as some of the things that have happened recently, I think have been quite uh, uh, supportive and positive in a way that I think does open the door for that as a reasonable possibility. Uh, what I want to emphasize as we go through this brief conversation is that while well, these outcomes are close in probability, they're very different in actual uh, uh, results. Uh, we do not see a mild recession as being mild with the exception of comparing it to other recessions. Recessions by nature are breaks. Recessions are, are by nature reverberate powerfully over uh, space and over time in manners that have a, a significant and lasting impact on the economy. Um, so with that in mind, let me just sort of start by saying last year as we uh, did this call, uh, the major uh, debating point was whether uh, the U.S. and possibly global economy would have an imminent slide into recession. Uh, we pushed back against that, and we were emphasizing resilience, persistence in inflation, and divergence in growth in terms of our key uh, themes. And I think that many of the themes on resilience played out. There were other forces other than monetary policy tightening which supported growth, including U.S. fiscal support, including the unwinding of commodity price drags, um, and including COVID normalization. But perhaps the most important thing to have emphasized in terms of the uh, global backdrop is that while monetary policy and inflation were screaming late cycle dynamics, uh, the pandemic unleashed enormous improvement in the private sector, both in the business and the household sector. So you had this tension between late cycle monetary policy and early mid cycle uh, private sector health. Uh, as we turn into 2024, I think people have embraced resilience, but they're now 
pushing back against the idea of persistence, uh, particularly on the inflation side. Uh, and on the start of the 24 outlook, I think the basic skepticism we would have is whether the inflation declines that we've seen right now, which has been uh, more than we expected, whether that's gonna deliver sustainably low inflation that will allow central banks uh, to ease early. Uh, labor markets are tight, service price inflation is sticky. Much of the decline in inflation that we've seen thus far in, in both the US and elsewhere has related to the volatile dynamics. Uh, and I think in that environment, at the minimum, central banks are gonna be slow in terms of uh, making the conclusion that policy uh, can be uh, eased from what are restrictive stances. Um, if we're right, continued uh, uh, policies staying pretty much where they are now uh, will uh, involve credit tightening, will involve balance sheet adjustments, will involve tighter financial conditions that will gradually erode uh, private sector health. And in that context, we have a forecast where there is actually weak growth of one, below 1% uh, for the first uh, two or three quarters of next year for the developed market economies. I would note, and I'm sure it's gonna be discussed in more detail later, that EM is actually in a reasonably good uh, uh, position. And that gradual uh, erosion of health that underlies that stickiness of inflation, this sort of persistence of restrictive monetary policy stance, I don't think can be timed accurately in terms of when it uh, potentially does lead to an end of expansion, but it's one in which we think vulnerabilities will gradually rise. I think it is important to understand what drives the alternative case. And some of that, uh, I think, is off of inflation news that turns out better than we expect. And I think specifically in the US, the case there has to be linked to some of the very positive supply side dynamics we've seen. Uh, productivity growth has been stronger. Labor force growth has been stronger. And as a result of that, the economy has grown rapidly over the last number of quarters with the unemployment rate actually drifting slightly higher. Uh, that's a more positive outlook than we had expected. But I think fundamentally, the case is that simply uh, the GDP growth we've seen this year in the US and globally, which has on average been one and a half percentage points or so above our forecast, has actually generated better outcomes in terms of wealth dynamics, in terms of um, uh, corporate earnings dynamics. And uh, right now, the overall picture of the household and business sector is not as uh, deteriorated as we had expected. Uh, so as I end, I just want to emphasize again, our baseline is for this boil the frog, gradual deterioration. It's driven by sticky inflation. It's driven by central banks that don't have the flexibility to ease. Uh, we're not fighting aggressively against an alternative scenario. And I do want to emphasize, I think it's going to take some time here in terms of reading the data to recognize which of these two paths uh, we're actually going to follow. And I'll stop there. Thanks, Bruce. Dubrovko, this will be very appropriate then to turn to you because you've written and spoken about concentration of equity uh, in the equity market, about companies perhaps losing pricing power and that putting pressure on margins, obviously valuations, which Marco mentioned. So Dubrovko Lakos Bujas is our chief global equity strategist and he leads equity macro research. Dubrovko, can you walk us through your view for 2024? Sure. No, uh, thank you for that. Um, yeah, so just, I guess, to take a quick uh, step back um, and also, you know, I'll, I'll look to touch upon, you know, various points that both Marco and Bruce uh, brought up. Uh, since the start of the rate hike cycle in 2022, um, our regional business cycles have been gradually weakening. And in line with that, earnings growth uh, in the corporate world has effectively stagnated. In fact, if you sort of calculate EPS, 
uh, between 21 and uh, 2024 expectations, CAGR for earnings is basically running at about 2.5%. Uh, so that's very, very mediocre. And the market, if you look kind of broadly, especially X, the top five or the top seven stocks, uh, it has effectively moved sideways, averaging around 4,200 level for the S&P. So in fact, 2022, I believe the average for S&P was 4,100. For this year, average has been around 4,300. Um, equity concentration, as Marco correctly pointed, um, did reach levels that we haven't seen since basically 1960s. Uh, so it seems like we're sort of at record high concentration levels in the market. Uh, we don't have enough data prior to 1960s to, to kind of, you know, analyze what happened back then. So some say maybe nifty 50s was a period when the situation was even slightly more extreme than, than, than today. But by no means, today is a very, very unique backdrop, very narrow leadership. Um, and historically, for what it's worth, these narrow leaderships typically tend to happen ahead of a slowdown or ahead of some form of contraction. Uh, obviously, timing that is, 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 is very tricky. Um, most active investors and I would say diversified portfolios underperformed in this kind of environment uh, with, with S&P 500 performance led by a small number of mega cap you know, stocks. In fact, the Magnificent Seven are up more than 100% year to date uh, versus S&P equal weighted, which is up mid single digits. Uh, and up until two weeks ago was effectively flat for the year. Um, defensive stocks, by contrast, have been underperforming. They're down for the year, right? Um, and in fact, I want to say about 40% of the S&P 1500 stocks are also down for the year. So if I kind of reflect back at this year, what we've generally gotten right, what we've gotten wrong, um, I think we've generally gotten right to the fact that, broadly speaking, the average stock within the market hasn't really done much at all. Uh, what we've gotten wrong is these magnificent seven that have basically um, you know, increased quite significantly. And I do think that a significant portion of investors um, also were, were sort of blinded by, by, by that move uh, and by the concentration in the market. Um, we see, uh, so now the big call that I think many people are starting to make is effectively that a lot of the laggards are going to start to reverse and become uh, leaders. And we see that as a tall order given that underperformers are more economically sensitive with lower and more vulnerable margins, especially in an environment of falling inflation. And in fact, after a period of record pricing power, again, not strong pricing power, but record pricing power for corporates, the recent disinflationary trend and the one that we, that our economists expect continues to happen, we think actually this will become a major headwind for corporate margins amidst still relatively sticky uh, and lagging wage trends. And this is what I would highlight as one of the biggest, in my opinion, disconnects in the market. You have a lot of equity folks that are basically calling for margin uh, you know, expansion and at the same time, we're basically you're seeing the economy that is increasingly suggesting, uh, you know, you know, lower inflation. And so people are basically taking sort of the good side of lower inflation, but not really incorporating the negative side of lower inflation, which just simply means weaker uh, pricing power. And so in an environment of falling inflation, I do think that pricing power for the corporate world, especially given the base level that we're coming off of, which, again, I said it was record, I think will be under increasing uh, will be under increasing pressure. And so our view basically is that absent rapid and sort of preemptive central bank easing, we simply expect a more challenging macro backdrop for stocks next year with, with softening consumer trends at a time when investor positioning and sentiment have mostly uh, been reversed. Uh, 
uh, equities are definitely richly valued and vol levels are pretty much you know close to historic lows, suggesting complacency. And Marco touched upon it, but geopolitical and political risks also remain elevated. So putting all this together, we think the risk reward for equities, broadly speaking, remains quite, quite challenged and negative. Um, and in terms of our sort of estimates and price targets, um, we're expecting a you know, mediocre 2 to 3% um, earnings growth for next year, uh, EPS of 225 uh, versus consensus that is a decent amount higher at, at, at 245. Um, and we have a price target effectively unchanged versus this year or next year at 4,200, noting that there would be more downside than upside bias to the price target, given our view that the cycle continues to decelerate and, and recession remains a live risk. Um, in terms of valuation, just really quickly want to just touch upon uh, just a few things. Um, evaluation is rich no matter how you look at it. And especially in light of the aging business cycle and still relatively restrictive monetary you know, policies. In fact, if you look at S&P 500 valuation versus the longer term history um, and versus, let's say, nominal and real rates, I would say valuation is overvalued by anywhere from three to four times uh, versus, versus the history. And equity risk premium effectively is in the 95th, 96th, 97th percentile since 2010. So that is pretty, I would say, pretty extreme. Um, and so we think generally the, 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 the risk reward for, for equities at this point um, is, 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 is not that attractive. Uh, more globally, um, uh, I'll just touch upon the U.S. really quickly within the global scheme. The U.S. continues to, we believe, command the quality premium over other markets, uh, given its sector composition and its cash-rich um, you know, mega-cap stocks. Uh, if the economic growth momentum of this year continues into 2024, it is likely the U.S. will underperform given wide valuation gap of the U.S. versus other regions. And Misla will talk more about that, uh, as well as also relatively wide um, gap in terms of positioning uh, between U.S. and the other regions. However, if the expected Goldilocks environment does not materialize, a risk we believe is underappreciated, the U.S. will likely outperform in an otherwise disappointing global equity uh, performance in, in, in 2024. Um, I'll let Ms. Love shortly talk about the international side of, of equities. But before I stop, um, last comment at the sort of, in terms of portfolio positioning at the style at the sector level, our broad-based recommendation is to overweight um, bond proxies in the equity world and also to overweight quality, especially at a reasonable price. So we call it quarp. And you know, one sector that, for instance, we think sits in the sweet spot of this mix is simply uh, utilities, a very unexciting sector, which has sort of been left a little bit for dead in the last few years. It's seen its multiple D rate by almost 10 turns. So bond proxies and quality to reasonable price, we, we think is very attractive. And the one last thing I'll, I'll flag is if you look at defensive stocks, again, I'm referring to the US here, relative to cyclical stocks, defensive stocks are only trading at a one turn premium to cyclical stocks versus the long-term history. So with expectations that the cycle will likely get tougher and not easier, we think that the defensive versus the cyclical side actually has a much more attractive risk reward in what we believe will be a tougher year for, for, for equities. So let me pause here and turn it back to you, Sam. Great, thank you. Mislav, that's a perfect segue to you. Uh, Mislav Machika is one of our lead equity strategists who specializes in the global outlook as well as Europe. Mislav, can you share your view on international equities? 
That's great. Thank you. So first thing, a uh, big picture, there is a clear contrast in risk reward to a year ago. December of last year, recession was base case for pretty much everybody. Credit spreads were wide. Volatility was double the current one. P multiple, as Dubravko said, for S&P 500 at the low was at 14 times. Average stock was down 30% from the highs and investors were bearishly positioned. Now, most are expecting soft landing, Goldilocks, VIX is at 12 at lows, credit spreads 400, 500 basis points tighter, S&P 500 P at 1920 times forward and positioning has become much fuller. So that is your trade-off. And in the same way that a year ago, maybe one should have faded all the doom and gloom, perhaps one should be a contrarian yet again. Now, in terms of the key drivers, what we see is uh, first the bond market move. We called in October that one should go long duration, and that's an important factor for equity returns. Second, and Dubravka talked about it already, earnings at present are elevated versus historical norms. Profit margins are at highs. This is not a depressed starting point. This is not a steady state starting point. Consensus is projecting an acceleration in earnings growth in 24 and 25 from an already high base. Companies' profitability benefited from COVID. And as the pricing power is retreating, top line and margins could be getting under pressure as well. So relative to consensus projections of, uh, of a move higher in earnings next year, and given what is far from a low starting point, the weakening PPIs, and potentially lower operating leverage uh, are, in our view, calling for softer rather than for stronger earnings growth next year. Now, uh, as we go through 24, and the Rock also talked about this, um, there is likely to be an opportunity, in my view, for a, a rotation, because this year, international equities lagged the US yet again uh, by 10%. Emerging markets, strongly underperformed the DM. Even if you take out China from the equation, they were behind. Small caps heavily underperformed large caps and inlet concentration increased further. Growth was big time beating uh, value. And, and we recognize that uh, valuations are, that they're getting uh, very interesting in a lot of these categories, especially past the big uh, performance. But for now we stay cautious on all of them, on international stocks versus the US, on EM, on small, and on value, because uh, basically, in my view, uh, we should be expecting a better entry point as we move through the next year. And what are the catalysts for this? Uh, the framework is potentially uh, the yield curve re-steepening as one driver uh, for the good reasons, uh, but that's only in the second half, and an inflection in activity momentum down the line. Now, to finish off, um, Two trades um, I would uh, highlight. Uh, first, uh, banks in Europe, uh, which we just recently cut to underweight. Um, uh, they had a stellar performance. Banks beat the market for third year in a row now. 21, 22, 23 European banks were ahead. Uh, and that was really all helped by rising bond yields uh, and consequently much better earnings trends for banks. So bond yields are peaking, profits for banks should be peaking as well. And last, um, Japan, um, we stay bullish. Um, I upgraded Japan in December of last year to overweight, um, advising at the time to hedge the uh, FX. 
But going forward, likely we don't need to do any of the FX hedging anymore. Uh, so the story here is still um, a little bit divorced from the you know cycle, hard lending, soft lending, all the locks, all that. It's really the arbitrage of the low cost of capital versus rising return on equity, which is set to continue. And the flows, they really stay a big support because so far this year, 8 trillion yen was bought of Japanese equities by foreigners, which compares to Koizumi and Abenomics eras, those two and a half and three year periods of 30 and 40 trillion yen. So, so we are way early on that trade. There's more to go. So um, that's it from me and Sam, back to you. Thank you, Ms. Lav. Mira, I'm going to come to you next. I also think it's a good segue uh, to talk about FX and we're going to start to move into the macro markets. You had said in your 2024 outlook that you expected the U.S. dollar to be bumpy but elevated. I'm hoping you can explain that and talk through some of your key views for currencies. Sure. Thanks a lot, um, Sam. And you know that's it. That's exactly right. I mean, I think there are two things to highlight in currencies. Uh, the first on the dollar, as you said, the dollar view is uh, certainly bumpy but elevated. Uh, that's the expectation. Certainly, we see pockets uh, that are possible for dollar weakness uh, on this rebound story, and um, you know, growth basing out in Europe and um, and China, as well as at the same time, the Fed coming to a pause and lots of cuts getting priced in. But the key concern to us is uh, two things. Uh, firstly, uh, the dollar. Um, by the end of next year is still projected to be a four and a half percent currency. That's a fairly you know solid yield for currency that that is basically for all intents and purposes a defensive one. Uh, it would still at four and a half percent be yielding more than 40 percent of the currencies globally. Um, and um, second, uh, US exceptionalism, the shades of that are still going to remain. Uh, we have in particular uh, you know US growth coming off the boil but from a very high above trend pace. Uh, whereas uh, in Europe, for example, we're already at stagnant growth. We're flirting with a recession. China growth, you know, is expected to base out, but is for all intents and purposes going to stay pretty tepid in the lack, you know, given the lack of sort of big bank stimulus. So this is not the same situation as this time last year where, you know, you had this massive terms of trade dividend uh, because of a decline in gas prices that could have been reaped. Uh, for example, DTF gas prices this time last year were at 130, 140 euros, uh, you know, and they fell. Now they stayed weak. So that's not going to give you the impulse, the growth impulse that we're looking for to see a dollar reversal. And at the same time, if you look at China, last year we had a very big bang, uh, China reopening post-COVID uh, that gave uh, this rebound, the durability of about six months or so, we certainly don't have that kind of event penciled in either. So sure, falling inflation is going to be a theme that should uh, you know, help support growth, but I don't think it's going to be enough to eliminate uh, the U.S. yield and growth exceptionalism. And in a nutshell, what we really need for a large 10% type dollar weakness uh, to pan out, we need one of two, you know, both of the two conditions that we're looking for. The first one being Fed cards, Fed pausing or cutting, which is basically something that we've, uh, you know, the condition there has been met. But the second thing is that we need better growth outside of the U.S., in particular Europe and China. And this is really the key source of contention. Uh, what I would say is like very much a theme that has been and a sentiment that has been echoed earlier on, uh, like risk markets, 
the dollar and FX markets are also very well priced to the soft landing outcome. So certainly, I think, uh, you know, if we do have an outcome in which inflation is sticky, uh, that is going to be one source of support over time for the dollar. So we, we are going to see this, uh, you know, as the market oscillates between U.S. exceptionalism and uh, a hard landing, uh, you know, we are going to see uh, this be quite a bumpy ride. Uh, and uh, But, you know, at the end of the day, our recommendation would be to tactically buy the dollar on dips and to do so, you know, mindful of what where we are in the cycle. So certainly we wouldn't want to be buying the dollar if growth in Europe and China are improving. But certainly once this runs out of steam again, we would be very willing to engage. Uh, aside from the dollar, I think there's, uh, uh, you know, there's other themes to focus on in FX as well. One of them uh, predominantly is around carry. You know, even though the dollar index is ending the year unchanged, your dollar has been in a very narrow five cent range all year. The big theme for FX market participants this year has been the 23% returns uh, that we've seen year to date on carry baskets, just a simple strategy of buying the highest versus the lowest yielders. And uh, a big part of that support was the fact that there was a massive amount of yield dispersion, a massive yield between the high yielders and low yielders. But now with everybody cutting rates, that yield is going to compress and we're going to see carry become a narrower theme. And I think that's going to allow a lot of these valuations, which have become quite stretched, you know, funders in particular that look quite cheap will, I think, be better supported. So candidates for a rebound on that theme are uh, within G10, Sweden and Australia. Uh, and on the bearish side where rate cuts should cause that convergence, I would say is New Zealand and Sterling on the bearish side. And our EM strategists have been pointing out Czech Republic as well as um, something on the bearish side in FX. Uh, final point in terms of targets, look, euro dollar, uh, we do have a bearish trajectory. We're looking for parity to 105 in the first half. Again, that's what you know the uh, thematic outlook is, but this is going to be interrupted from time to time because it's not just European growth that's weak. We're also seeing US inflation come off, but we're keeping that bearish bias because at the end of the day, the Fed and the ECB are going to be coming to a pause and cutting for very, very different reasons, uh, with the US being the more growth constructive one. So still keeping that uh, bearish trajectory. At some point, the cyclical um, dominance of the US will invert, and we should see euro dollar head higher. But timing of when that happens, the conviction around that is pretty low. So uh, that's not really going to be a theme for till later the next year. Uh, Dollar-yen, uh, we are looking for a recovery because U.S. yields will be coming off. But again, there should be a partial recovery because if the Fed ends at 4.5% uh, for next year and all the Bank of Japan is doing is modest exit of NERP, that's not really going to result in a massive uh, mean reversion. So mid-140s seems about right. Although, you know, if U.S. starts to tilt towards a recession, that's when I think we sort of get into the 130s for dollar-yen. And then finally, I would say dollar CNY, sort of neutralish right now ahead of the new year, uh, but looking for 730 to 735 in the first half um, as uh, the weaker uh, momentum sets in. Okay, thank you, Mira. Jay, I'm going to turn to you. Jay Barry is our co-head of U.S. Rate Strategy. I feel like there's many directions you could go in in your market, whether it's rising term premium, bond volatility, or the fact that your team over the last year has been highlighting the change in treasury demand and how that's been shifting. So I'd like to hear from you uh, what's most relevant and what have you been highlighting to clients? No, thanks so much, Sam. And, and thanks, everyone, for the time this morning, this afternoon, this evening, wherever you are. Um, as you said, it's been another tumultuous year for rates. And you know, I think as we look ahead to 2024, our view is rooted in the economic outlook that's been talked about um, and aided, we think, by a Fed that in all likelihood will be lowering rates in the second half of next year. 
by about 100 basis points. Um, and certainly, I think the difference between a soft landing and a recession is very impactful for you know my partners in risk assets here. Um, while I think for us in rates, it just matters with the magnitudes of the move and the conviction we have on the positions that we recommend. So I think with that as a starting point, <clears throat> it's been talked about by a few of the speakers this morning that it, it seems concretely so that the Fed is done tightening, and we will hear more from that on, from Chair Powell later this week. But we still think we're quite away from the beginning of Fed easing. And if we're right, this is sort of one of the longer on hold periods we'll have seen in modern history. Nevertheless, I think it's instructive to use that as a starting point and understand that over the last four extended tightening cycles, when the Fed comes to conclude those cycles, intermediate Treasury yields tend to decline by about 150 basis points on average in the period from about six months before the first cut till about that first cut date. Um, and, and typically, the, full, the, the fullest extent of that move comes within three or four months of the first cut. So we don't have 100% foresight here, obviously. But in the context of what we've seen on the U.S. economy right now and what we expect for the, few months, for the next few months, it seems like this sort of broad embrace of the, the soft landing that's occurred over the last few weeks has come a bit earlier than we would have expected. Nonetheless, I think it's a starting point to evaluate the markets. Similarly, along those lines, typically you see in that period, about six months up to the first cut, the curve at the long end tends to steepen by about 50 basis points. So I think this puts some guardrails on the way to think about next year, um, but there are some key differences in our mind. Um, and first and foremost amongst them is that while the rate policy tightening cycle has drawn to a close, we expect QT to continue apace throughout the year. Um, from a high-level perspective, this may seem inconsistent because our forecast looking for the Fed to lower rates would obviously be an easing while letting the balance sheet run down as a tightening. But I think the comments from Chair Powell this summer were very impactful in that manner, where he communicated to the markets that the funds rate is the Fed's primary policy tool, and that should it be able to ease next year as inflation moderates, it could continue to do QT in the background because it will be normalizing both of its policy levers. And that's an important point, because prior to COVID, the Fed owned about a 12% share of the Treasury market. And at its peak about this time two years ago, that was about 25%. It's about 18 right now, and if we're right, it'll be normalizing by the end of next year. And that's meaningful because while in the last QT episode, there was only an impact on funding rates, this time it's synchronized in nature across DM central banks. And our work has shown that as the Fed expands its share of the Treasury market, yields tend to fall at the long end and the curves tend to, to flatten. So the unwind of that naturally should anchor yields at higher levels and help steepen the curve. The second, as you said, Sam, is the reshaping of Treasury demand away from the Fed and U.S. banks and foreign investors and more towards more price-sensitive investors, which um, we expect that to continue mainly because the Treasury market is continuing to grow at a rapid rate. And while the latest announcement from the Treasury Department about a month ago did help assuage some of the worst concerns over supply, the duration supply in the Treasury market is likely to rise by about 20% in 2024 over 2023. So against this backdrop, as you said, we think this necessitates higher term premium. And higher term premium, it's hard to observe in the markets, but it very much correlates with steeper yield curves. So in essence, we're looking for ways to add duration in 2024 in the two to five year sector, but we think it's been overdone lately, particularly given that positioning is very extended. And we like to hold on to steepeners, particularly at the long end of the yield curve as we roll into next year. And of those two, we think the steepener is, is the, the higher sort of um, likelihood trade for the time being, given the way we sort of um, rallied and flattened. And if anything, 
the yield curve looks quite steep relative, to, uh, excuse me, quite flat relative to its fundamental drivers. Um, so I'll leave it there and, and turn it back to you right now. Great, thanks, Jay. Fabio, Fabio Bossi is our head of international rate strategy. Uh, you've written about DM easing cycles and how you believe they're gonna start. Uh, can you provide more details as to what you expect from some of the major international central banks? Sure, thank you, Sam. In, uh, in international rates, we expect the DM central bank to start easing next year. Our call is for the RBNZ and the Scandinavian central bank to start cutting between May and June for the ECB to start in September and for the BOA, a BOE in the fourth quarter. A central bank for which we expect uh, to be on hold is the RBA, for which uh, we don't expect any easing next year. The Bank of Japan on the other side will be the only central bank to tighten. However, this is going to be a very limited, they're going to end uh, negative interest rate policy and reach uh, uh, 0% in the, in the third quarter. So our outlook on international DM rates uh, is clearly bullish duration under our baseline that easing will start in 2024 and that central bank will be able to take policy rate, uh, you know, close to neutral sometime in 2025. Risks to this outlook are clearly biased to an earlier and more aggressive easing cycle as the risk of recession should allow some probability of policy rate uh, moving below neutral in easing territory. So. When we look across the M central bank, we continue to believe that the cumulative amount of easing that is pricing the curve is too little, but at the same time that too much easing is priced for the very short term, like in the first quarter of next year. In the short term, we believe that the M central bank and definitely the ECB and the Bank of England will push back against some early rate cut with the fear that premature cuts could ease a broadly financial condition and bring back some inflation concern despite the recent dynamic. So in the euro area, given the amount of cumulative easing that is not fully pricing neutral rate, we see value in receiving at the short end of the curve, but given the recent speed of the move, we are keeping at the moment only long duration position in option format. On the yield curve, we also call for end of cycle, typical bull steepening dynamic, and the breast expression that we have in the euro area is in 1030 conditional bull steepener. The sharp retracement in yield that we have seen over the past few weeks, uh, in our view, seems more driven by investors fearing the missed opportunity of buying at an attractive yield level, therefore are stopping in and buying duration. In terms of target, we have a 10-year boom target of 225 by mid-year and 2% by the end of next year. And clearly, a faster and more aggressive easing cycle is going to give uh, some downside risk to visa yield protection, uh, projection. In terms of intra-EMU, we expect a gradual tightening in the first half of 2024 on the back of easing financial condition, limited political risk, a private sector that in our view will be able to absorb quite heavy EGB supply. On QT in Europe, we expect no further acceleration until the end of 2024, but we see risk of some declining of their investment in the second half of the year. And by then, we expect the intra-EMU spread, especially in the periphery, to come some under modest pressure, and the market is, is going to start pricing some we weakening of this uh, policy safe net. So in terms of forecast, we have uh, Italy-Germany spread at uh, around 170 by mid of next year, and around 200 by the end of uh, 2024, with uh, France-Germany uh, at 45 mid-year 
and 50 by the end of 2024. Moving to UK, we have a, me a bullish medium-term view on the short end of the Sonia curve. As valuation, in our view, uh, look cheap, clearly under our higher for longer and soft landing macro scenario. But clearly, they also offer a very decent protection for hard landing or a global recession outcome over the next 12 months. We expect 10-year uh, uh, yields to decline to 380 mid-year and 345 by the end of next year. We also have a statical steepening bias on the 1030 yield curve, given valuation and carry. But we look to trade very tactically over the first quarter. Moving to Japan, I think that the BOJ will diverge, as I said, from the rest of uh, central bank. We're starting to remove the negative interest rate policy early next year. We forecast that uh, the BOJ will move uh, first to YCC and, as I said, exit the NIRP by the third quarter. But we expect the BOJ to under-deliver on hikes relative to the market expectation. And that is the reason why we like receiving at the short end of the J uh, Japanese uh, swap curve. And on the JGB curve, we recommend a two-stand steepener given the reduction of the Rimban operation that are going to affect more the 10-year sector. So overall, in the M rates, we have a strong bias to call for positive bond return across the M for 2024. We expect the JGB to be the market to underperform across the developed market, clearly making the short JGB an attractive leg for any DM cross-market trade. And while U.S. Treasury and U.K. yields are expected to deliver higher return overall by the end of next year, we prefer in the first half to have long position in the euro area. So going in the first quarter, our preference for cross-market trade in international rates would be to be long Bund, OET, or bonus cross-market versus JGB. And let me stop here. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Fabio. Steve, I'm going to turn to you. Stephen Dulake is our head of global spread research. Steve, you wrote in your outlook about this continuing tension between yields and spreads and how you, you know, spoke about what would be driving returns moving into 2024. I'm curious if you want to speak about that or any other highlights from the credit space you think are relevant for investors. Sure. I mean, I would say, um, quite frankly, that, that tension hasn't been too evident over the past few weeks because you've seen both um, all-in yields decline, obviously powered by um, the decline in, in underlying government bond yields, and you've also seen um, spreads tighten. So I think a sort of interesting question at this juncture is, you know, what's left? You know, we when we published our um, 2024 outlook for spread markets, You know, regardless of market segment, um, you know, when we did that in sort of the second or third week in November, we were thinking that returns um, in 2024 would be somewhere between sort of high double digits and, and, and low double digits. When you think about what we've seen, both in terms of the move of um, the decline in bond yields and, and the tightening in spreads we've seen, That's clearly served as a bit of a drawdown on return potential in next year. Nonetheless, we still feel um, that sort of uh, across most market segments, um, something a high single-digit return area is very, very possible. Um, but to be perfectly frank, it's it's um, you know it's it's Jay's treasuries and and Fabio's bonds which are going to do all the heavy lifting from a from a total, total return perspective. So their year-end, um, you know, three and three-quarter forecast for Treasury yields, as you heard from Fabio, 2% for 
bond yields at the end of next year are sort of quite critical from the perspective of securing those high um, single digit returns. But what I would say um, is that we still think that, um, you know, if we do think about this trade off between spread or spread and all in yield, um, we do think that all in yields remain in a very attractive zip code um, for investors. Um, that's certainly underscored by record trading volumes in North American investment grade markets um, currently. It's underscored, I think, still by very active uh, primary markets uh, in the leveraged finance space. So in terms of what investors seem to be telling us from the deployment of their capital, it seems to be that all in yields remain in an attractive, in an attractive place. In terms of some of the other things which I think are very relevant um, looking forward, um, people love to talk about supply. If you think about what we're saying about supply, uh, supply across the spread complex, um, you know, this isn't just for corporates. It also includes securitized products, ABS, and all of that, CLOs. Um, we actually think that net issuance in 2024 uh, across the global spread complex is going to be the lysis it's been in, in, in eight or nine years, which stands in marked contrast um, to what we're likely to see in government bond markets, not least um, the treasury market. So, you know, spreads can still remain a relatively small part. We're, we're very comfortable with the idea that um, spreads don't look mispriced when you think about them as a percentage of uh, the overall yield. So point number one, spreads are tight, but maybe not too tight. Issuance is likely to be light. When you think about the tails and the potential for credit losses, um, triple B minus bonds are, are, are you know, at a decade low in terms of their uh, representation in the overall market. Um, if you think about, again, coming back to what I said about capital markets activity, companies have done an incredible job of pushing out their 24 and 25 maturities to anywhere between 2028 uh, and 2030. The net result of that actually is that as we move into next year, um, we actually think that default rates are likely to turn out a bit lower than where we've been forecasting from, from, from for quite some time. So, you know, our placeholder forecast for defaults um, in loans and bonds coming into 2024 for a very long period was for about three and a quarter in bonds, 4% in loans. We've rev we revised that as we published our outlook to two and three quarters for bonds and just three and a quarter for loans. So, you know, when you think about the, the, the sort of the concept of the tails in credit markets um, and, and the sort of, you know, whether it's downgrade risk, whether it's default risk, you know, the potential for outside credit losses, you know, given our macro narrative is pretty low. So, again, it's going to be an interesting year because we're talking about credit markets but it's actually rates which are doing all the heavy lifting from a total return perspective. But nonetheless, you know, given what my colleagues are saying, we still think it can be a high single digit year. Um, lastly, I'd say just a couple of things. Um, uh, I'm a little loath to mention the word decompression because it's the third time that we're, we're mentioning it. Um, this was a feature of our outlook in 23. We thought that we would see some more of it um, in the second half of last year. So we restated that. Uh, at the mid-year point. Um, we haven't seen it, but we do think as growth moderates a bit, you should finally begin to see a little bit of decompression between um, high grade and high yield. Um, and then lastly, on these calls, we tend not to mention emerging market corporates very much, but 
um, you know, whether you regard it as normalization or not, we are going to see default rates um, halved basically uh, in the hard currency emerging market corporate space. And issuance is likely to remain deeply negative in net terms as companies continue to tap local markets. So there's a very, very strong technical for emerging market corporates uh, as we move into uh, 2024. And I think it could be another year where you have a, a, a sort of a stealthy outperformance uh, by EM corporates, given the focus still, I think, on, on developed markets. I'll leave it there. Great. Thank you, Steve. And that's actually a perfect segue, so I don't have to moderate us over to emerging markets. Luis Oganis is our head of global macro research. Uh, various asset classes sit under his purview, but for the spirit of this call, he's going to be speaking about emerging markets. Luis. Thanks, Sam. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. So emerging markets, like many other asset classes, uh, traded up and down based on whatever the market narrative was around the position of the U.S. business cycle during the course of 2023 and probably will continue doing so during 2024. Um, at this stage, as was mentioned uh, uh, earlier in the call by, by Bruce and referred to uh, by others, we do have this uh, period of uh, indetermination as to where exactly the U.S. cyclical position is. Uh, with the data flow in the coming months potentially supporting both a soft landing scenario or a hard landing scenario, or uh, a, what Bruce calls uh, "ball the frog," that uh, uh, would have you know dramatically different, uh, potentially dramatically different uh, imp implications for emerging market assets. When we look at history, EM has not uh, dealt well in a scenario of a U.S. recession uh, for a good reason, right? Generally speaking, it's a risk of environment. You know, equities uh, are correct. Uh, credit spreads uh, go up, the dollar appreciates, and all that uh, makes uh, EM uh, a correction in EM assets uh, almost uh, unavoidable. Uh, however, we don't know exactly where we are. The market seems to be pricing a more optimistic scenario right now of, uh, of soft landing. And, uh, and even compared to where we were a couple of weeks ago when we published our year-ahead outlook, uh, at that time, given this uh, indefinition of the cyclical position of the US, the only asset class within EM fixing that we felt comfortable being overweight from a top-down level was uh, EM currencies, uh, EMFX. Uh, we were neutral uh, local markets and neutral uh, hard currency spreads for uh, basically a, a valuation reason. In the case of local markets, uh, uh, you know, when you look at the average yield of a GBIEM, you know, was at historical lows compared to U.S. Uh, uh, Treasury yields. In the case of uh, Hard currency spreads uh, for the MBIC. Uh, also, when you take out that triple C's, which is you know a bit more of the problematic part of the asset class, where there are some defaults uh, happen that have happened or in the pipeline, uh, we saw spreads being also very close to the historical tights. But guess what? In the last three weeks since we published. Uh, uh, GBIM yields, you know, have uh, compressed another, you know, 42 basis points. In the case of uh, uh, MBIC spreads, they have compressed uh, another uh, 45 basis points. So, uh, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, the, the valuation that was not looking attractive uh, three weeks ago has gotten even tighter. And uh, uh, in the in the, in, in recently, uh, we were projecting, and uh, you know, based again on the project, the, the forecast that we have for uh, treasury yields at the end of 2024, uh, returns in uh, GBIEM in the local currency bonds uh, uh, in EM, uh, probably in the high single digits, around eight percent for the full year uh, next year. In the case in the case of MBIC. The projection was around 12%. Uh, of course, some of that has already happened in the last couple of weeks. So the total uh, uh, returns for, for 2024 are already looking uh, uh, diminished. 
Now, uh, there is at least, you know, the, the saving grace for, for emerging markets is that, uh, you know, along with the U.S. was actually at the block, economic block within, uh, uh, in, in the world that actually outperformed expectations. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, EM, uh, you know, very few countries actually fell into a recession despite the Fed tightening, despite so many EM central banks tightening. And um, so it was a good set, uh, test case uh, that uh, a good test that uh, you know EM economies uh, in a way uh, uh, survived. Uh, however, that did, didn't this hasn't meant uh, a return of capital flows into EM fixed income or EM equities as uh, Ms. Lab, uh, mentioned earlier. Uh, part of that was honestly the competition coming from uh, U.S. Treasury yields being so high. You know why so many investors were saying you know when they come out to try to market uh, EM uh, as an asset class. You know some of the responses are well, why bother if you have you know uh, risk-free returns that you can earn in three uh, three months. Uh, uh, you know, U.S. money markets, you know, earning more than 5% uh, compared to what you can get, you know, in the 6 or 7% uh, uh, vicinity in, uh, in EM fixed income. So uh, that obviously is going to change the moment that the Fed starts to cut at some point next year. Again, we don't know whether it, the reality is going to validate uh, the current market pricing of 5 plus uh, cuts or it's going to be something uh, more modest. Uh, but at least, you know, that should eventually provide us support. And that's why in our projections for 2024, we are expecting a return of uh, capital inflows into uh, EM fixed income. From the more fundamental side, growth is expected to moderate. This year, we're estimating growth of 4.1% for EM as a whole, going down to 3.8. The potential growth for EM as a block is 4.4. So strictly speaking, next year is going to be a below potential growth a year, uh, not dramatically uh, below, but uh, below nonetheless. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the one thing that is probably going to uh, support at least the local market side is that uh, EM central banks, especially those that did hike quite a bit, are going to have probably the room to continue to cut. Or some of them that have not started cutting yet will probably start doing so during the course of next year. Uh, many central banks, particularly in Latin America, some in Central and Eastern Europe, that high quite a bit where policy rates got to the double digits, where real rates right now are already three, four, five, six percent clearly have room to cut. You know, no economy can sustain that kind of real rate for a long period of time. And so long as inflation remains well behaved, and so long as we have, you know, relatively more comfort and conviction that the Fed is done or at least is not going to hike any further, probably that'll provide a green light for EM central banks uh, uh, to ease. So overall, you know, the picture for EM, a lot is going to depend on exactly what happens with the U.S. cyclical position. Uh, if, if soft landing, the expectations of soft landing is validated, EM has the potential to do actually quite well, both in the economics and on the market side. If the U.S. economy falls into recession, we're going to need to be quite nimble. We're clearly on our recommendations, not positioned for that uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, switching to, to underweights. Because as I said before, typically, under a U.S. recession, you do see spread widening, you do see local currency yields going uh, higher, you do see EM currencies uh, uh, depreciating against the dollar. That is not the case right now, and that's why you know we're overweight EMFX. We are a, a neutral on local currency bonds and in MVIC for the time being. That's it, Sam. Thank you. Thank you, Luis. Natasha, I'm going to turn to you. Lots of excitement in your asset class. In your outlook, you outlined about how macro drivers, perhaps inflation and the growth outlook, wouldn't be driving the picture as much. And you'd have to continue to be, as your team has called, to be very sector specific and tactical. So I'd love to hear your views on your asset class. 
Uh, yes, uh, th thank you so very much. Thank you for everybody who joined us today. Yes, the word for 2024 is tactical, but to be fair, it was uh, the same word for 2023. So after two consecutive years of double digits returns, commodities markets are on track to deliver a 10% contraction this year. Uh, we believe next year actually steady demand growth uh, should push prices of key commodities, for example, like oil higher from the current levels. Uh, but at the same time, you're absolutely, absolutely correct. Without the strong um, macro growth drivers like inflation, like growth, what uh, Bruce was describing or Jay was describing in his uh, in his remarks is clearly you have to be very, very tactical. So same as in 2023, for example, last year when we presented for our investors exactly a year ago, what we said is that number one recommendation was, uh, was gold. We upgraded gold to a buy in November of last year. So this is the call that worked out very nicely for this year. We're maintaining it for 2024 as well. We liked energy last year, but we believe that the U.S. natural gas prices will collapse by 40%. Again, that was a great call that materialized. In oil, we recommended to be tactical. So in July, we recommended to buy Brent at $72, and we recommended to get out at $90 in September. Again, so the tactical view worked out, and we were neutral for uh, on industrial metals and agricultural commodities. So in 2024, we expect more of the same. So again, gold and silver are number one recommendation for our investors for 2024. You know, clearly there will be a few final twists and turns in the Fed uh, cutting debate. Uh, so this should challenge gold from the current uh, elevated levels. Uh, but at the same time, we believe that uh, when the Fed cutting cycle will begin, whether it's, you know, second half of 24 or the first half of 2025, we expect that to trigger a breakout rally uh, in the gold prices. The target we have, it's $2,300 for gold and $2,025, $30 for silver. Uh, so on energy, we remain tactically constructive on energy. We believe that the call actually will flip. So if this year natural gas price target was 40% lower, next year we'll have it 45% higher from the current levels, especially going towards the end of the year. The target is about $4 versus $2.30 where we're trading today. Um, so in the case of oil, um, Again, you know, you have to be very, very nimble. You know, the word you, you, uh, Luis used or, you know, tactical, the way we're describing it. So the situation for the oil market is that, and we have been, you know, um, talking about this narrative since, since last November is that demand is great. We actually have record demand growth, um, but there's just too much non-OPEC supply. So um, that, that was the situation in 2023. OPEC was left to continue cutting to balance the market. Nothing is going to change since 2024. We have very strong demand growth next year, but again, non-OPEC supply would be enough to cover all of that. And the, the market should even soften more into 2025. But again, we do believe that there will be a lot of tactical opportunities to actually play that. Uh, we see the, the range between $75 to $90 next year uh, with the prices peaking in the third quarter, about $13 above today's spot price and to the forward curve. Uh, we see Brent price averaging $75 in 2025. Um, so just one sentence on the European natural gas prices, you know, the weakness in the U.S. price that we're observing this year and through the first uh, half of next year will eventually start feeding through the European gas market, mostly because the LNG capacity will be up and ramping up in 2024 and especially 2025. So this weakness will materialize in those markets. So the TTF price average is $38 in 2024 and $28 in 2025. 
maintain neutral view on industrial metals. 2025 should be the year when we're getting excited with the price uh, $10,000 target for copper, $2,600 for aluminum. And again, in the agricultural markets, considering the weather conditions, we just have a tactical bullish bias. Um, so especially for sugar and wheat, uh, especially through the first half of next year. Uh, so Sam, back to you. Thank you. So Natasha Kaneva is our head of global commodity strategy, if I didn't say that at the beginning. <laughs> Thank so you. That wraps up our asset class summaries in the last part of the call. And I know we're running over a little bit, but a lot of very good content to go through. We're going to talk about thematic and then the longer term view. So now I'd like to introduce Joyce, Joyce Chang, who's our chair of global research. Joyce, for the year ahead outlook, you gave us uh, content from the strategic research team on a few different things, the three Ds, which you may want to speak about, and then also the global election landscape. So it would be great to hear what you're focusing on now. Um, thank you so much, Sam, for those questions. So we're focused, first of all, on the election calendar. Going into 2024, there are 77 elections. 50% of the world's population will be going to the polls, or about 60% of global GDP. And I would argue that the election that will receive the most attention is the U.S. election, and it's probably the election that has the most global consequences, meaning those beyond the nation state. But there are many of the long-term risks that are going to be in focus at these elections. And those three Ds, we call them deglobalization, de-dollarization, and decarbonization. And they are part of the longer-term risks that we're looking at with respect to the macro, the political, the um, climate change nature risk, and the technology risk uh, that lie ahead. Um, on the U.S. elections, um, I think that all eyes will be on the polls. And if the current polling continues, um, it, is it a Biden-Trump runoff? What does this mean with respect to multilateral agreements like the Paris Agreement? Also, um, what does it mean with respect to 10% tariff, which has been talked about, um, as well as restrictions on immigration and what happens with the corporate um, tax cuts? Um, just taking a look at the other risks that we're talking about, both deglobalization and de-dollarization are long-term tail risk, but we've seen some interesting trends developing that are worth highlighting right now. First, we have seen that at the top line, there's very little um, evidence that you've seen much change in global trade or even in China's share of trade, but the trading patterns have shifted. We're seeing a convergence now where Mexico and China's share of U.S. imports have actually converged. Latin America is exporting record amounts to China right now, particularly in the commodities um, sector. Um, on de-dollarization, although we have not seen a top-line change in the use of dollar, we are seeing emerging markets countries diversify away from dollars, increasing their gold holdings and looking at the commodity transactions. Natasha's numbers show that about 20% of those transactions are now denominated in non-dollars. So there's clear diversification away from the dollar, particularly by the emerging markets countries. And this has been in the aftermath um, of the sanctions um, that were imposed on Russia, just other emerging markets countries really hesitating to hold more of their FX reserves um, in dollars. And taking a look at the um, you know, decarbonization risk, um, all attention has been focused on the financing needs. Um, we estimate that about $630 billion is now raised for climate financing, but those needs are estimated from anywhere from $3.4 trillion to $5 trillion by the IEA. 
and we have yet to really see a lot of proposals um, that really will encourage the type of private capital involvement um, that is needed, and we've seen the number of climate disasters um, you know, increasing. And finally, I'd like to talk um, a little bit just about um, some of the tech risks we see, because we do see a rise in industrial policy that has increased with the use of sanctions. Um, we do think that you could see the introduction of CHIPS 2.0 before the end um, of Biden's term. We've also um, you know, taken a look at just the cost of cyber um, security risk right now, which we estimate to have approached about $8 trillion. Um, so that remains at the top of headlines for many businesses as well. Well, what does this all mean for markets? Reinforcing some of the themes that you've heard from the um, strategists earlier today, you could see that if the current polling continues, U.S. dollars risk are to the upside as the possibility of new tariffs um, is considered. On the commodity side, um, you still have that 80% of um, you know, food, infl food inflation is higher in 80% of countries than overall inflation, and um, that that means agricultural commodity prices could see further upside um, you know, as well. So those are some of the longer term themes that we're focused on. Great, thank you, Joyce. And our very last speaker is Thomas Salopek, who's our head of cross-asset strategy. Tom and his team have been doing more work uh, from a statistical point of view on modeling different key risks and different time horizons. So Tom, did you wanna walk us through some of your team's key research? Thanks, Sam. So I'll be talking about how the 2024 outlook interfaces with our longer term strategic three to five year capital market assumptions. So we have a quant CMA model, which uh, still recommends underweight stocks, overweight fixed income, which is largely in line with our tactical house view. So looking into the details of the recommendations, underweight U.S. stocks, overweight U.S. and U.K. bonds, uh, overweight the safer pockets of credit with an appreciation of the all-in yield of of U.S. high grade, and uh, even if our, our uh, house view on, on currency is, is a bit bullish to the dollar right now, we think over the long run, the overvaluation of the dollar will, will weigh on it on the three to five year horizon. The key takeaway for us is that tactical will be necessary to implement strategic in 2024 will offer us some, some key inflection points for, for longer term investors. So. In terms of the uh, extremes in the run-up to the current period, uh, Dubrovko mentioned one of them with the market cap concentration, which is at extremes we haven't seen in the 60s or 70s. Um, if we look as well at the small cap versus large cap ratio, that's that's as, as bad as we've seen since the internet bubble. In bonds, we've had three years of rising bond yields. We haven't seen that since the 70s. Stock bond correlation has been disrupted for now up something like 20 years initially by China and QE, and then uh, worsened by um, the, the hiking cycle. And so we expect a lot of these distortions that have been created in the run-up to the current period can create a, 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 a rationale for these thing, things to reverse on both the tactical and strategic timeframe. In terms of the easy way to do asset allocation, if we knew what regime we're in exactly, you can implement what's worked in the past uh, the difficulty with the recent period is we've been jumping around between regimes from since last fall, hard landing to soft landing to no landing, ping ponging back and forth between high for long and, and Goldilocks. And so we've, we've experienced some pretty divergent economic paths with the lack of clarity on the magnitude and timing of the economic slowdown uh, with the business cycle that's been sustained by cash cushion, strong jobs market, and a, a lot of folks shielded from the, the impact of the monetary policy, in particular in the U.S. with U.S. fixed rate mortgages and large caps borrowing 
in, in fixed rates with, with long-weighted average maturities. Uh, in terms of the asset allocation, we think it's a little bit clearer uh, path ahead. Uh, in particular, we'd highlight this idea that uh, regardless of where things go with the economy, whether you have a slowdown or recession, uh, the idea is, is that uh, we do expect lower bond yields by the end of 2024. The idea is, is that whether it's good cuts due to uh, disinflation or bad cuts due to growth risk, you end up uh, uh, in the same direction at the very least. Uh, as for stocks, uh, this combination of, of high inflation and high pricing power has produced the margins and profitability. So disinflation will be nothing to cheer for. Uh, uh, one thing that I point out is that when you get to a point of negative PPI year over year growth, you end up with flat to negative uh, earnings expectations growth, um, which is in stark contrast to the 11% or so expected by the consensus. So in terms of the catalyst for correction, you have growth risk materializing possibly as companies lay off to uh, uh, workers to restore profitability, unachievable consensus earnings expectations, uh, margins being challenged, uh, rising interest rate expense. So in, in terms of how to use our tactical to, do, to guide the strategic positioning, strategic is going to be uh, bearish for the same reason that our tactical is bearish, which is that you either have a growth slowdown or recession in the window. Uh, you cannot commit to durable SAA positioning when you know inflection points are just around the, around the corner. Uh, why will 2024 offer entry points? Bond yields historically peak three to five uh, months ahead of rate cutting. If they've already peaked, we, we can recommend for strategic investors to look into uh, averaging into longer duration positions, especially reducing cash overweights. Um, uh, if, if long duration positioning in bonds uh, looks like it's neutralizing, they may even offer a better entry point on bond yields in the, in the first half of the year. Stocks as well will, will continue to struggle uh, with the with the rising uh, disconnect between uh, higher earnings expectations uh, versus falling economic growth, uh, and in addition, stocks are facing uh, big shifts or tailwinds to headwinds. Uh, uh, I'll give a few examples. We've had falling interest rates for decades, now rising. Falling tax rates for decades, now rising. Uh, disinflation from globalization now shifting to to costly friendshoring. So we don't want to paint an overly bearish picture on the strategic asset allocation. All we're saying is that right now we have a setup, which as Dubravka alluded to with equity risk premium, where the stock versus bond risk premium is unattractive and you have a complacent risk environment. However, uh, if stocks would, would correct, we can reassess that stock versus bond attractiveness. Stocks will cheapen to fair levels. Bond yields will be lower at that point. But for now, we are recommending, in line with our tactical, our strategic asset allocation uh, recommends uh, a, a cautious allocation for now. And we can revisit as we see some of the inflection points in 24. That's it. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Thomas. To all of our research analysts, thank you for your insights. To all our clients and our partners who have tuned in, thank you for listening. And as in 2023 into 2024 and beyond, we look forward to providing insights, analysis, and investment ideas to you. And that concludes today's call.